0: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez, and as the director of Rare Book School, I have the great privilege of hosting today the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography at Rare Book School. Uh, This is the the one named lecture we have at the school, and it's named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian book selling world. Covering book collecting and research librarianship as well as used and rare book selling, the journal was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians. Everybody read a copy. In 1984, Mary Ann Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin, in recognition of his manifold contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship, long on the faculty of Rare Book School, gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December of 1985. After Saul Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship delivered the inaugural lecture, Mary Ann herself, uh, after after he died, a few months later, sorry, after Saul Malkin died in 1986, Winship gave the second lecture. Marianne herself continued to support Rare Book School, both at Columbia and then at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she allowed Rare Book School founding director Terry Bellinger to change the name of the lecture to the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography as it stands today. Until her death in 2005, Marianne came down from New York City to attend the annual lecture, and she left the school a significant portion of her estate, which was extremely important for the ongoing vitality of Rare Book School. She was a great friend of RBS. Malkin lecturers over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Robert Darnton, Johanna Drucker, Miriam Foote, Christopher de Hamel, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Keyes Lieb, Paul Needham, Bill Reese, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. Today's Malkin Lecture is also of great distinction. Collectors come in all sizes and stripes. But in my experience, the ones who find the most joy in their collecting are the most generous with their time, expertise, and even their collections. Some years ago, when Dr. Philip Maddock learned that I was studying multiple copies of John Pine's famous edition of Horace, he wrote to me to tell me that he himself owned five copies that he had collected for their Irish decorated bindings. What else? And would I like to study them? He soon was sending me snazzy pictures, not only of his own pines, but also of other noteworthy examples. Yes, all of them sporting Irish decorated bindings that had been part of an exhibition he had curated for the Guinness Library in 2013. Later, he was identifying still other bindings for me, all Irish, from other collections, recognizing particular tools he could, it seemed, provide an informed attribution in less than a minute's time. Some collectors are digital Luddites, so immersed in the world of the codex, that they regard the digital with grave suspicion, if not abject horror. Dr. Philip Maddock, who as a distinguished radiation oncologist, used the affordances of the digital to help save many human lives, has also found ways to deploy digital technologies in the book world to begin to restore what was thought to be forever lost. Philip G. Maddock was born, reared, and educated in Dublin, Ireland. Listen to the man, and you know he's a Dubber. He was graduated in 1967 from University College Dublin with his medical degree and undertook postgraduate training in radiation oncology. Somewhere along the line, Philip and his wife, Neem, moved to New England, settling in Rhode Island. His first serious antiquarian book purchase, Malton's Views of Dublin, came when he was just 19. Who knew the lad would become the foremost expert on 18th century Irish parliamentary bindings? Who knew he would come to be a mainstay of the Club of Odd Volumes in Boston? Who knew that he would be honored in Dublin for his manifold contributions to Irish binding history? Who knew the wee boy would one day grow up to be an RBS Malkin lecturer? (laughs) Dr. Maddock retired from medical practice two years ago, but he has in no way slackened his pace. His Irish parliamentary bindings are currently on display at Dublin Castle as the stars of the exhibition Burning Books, June 1922, the destruction and recreation of the Irish Irish parliamentary book bindings. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you our Malkin Lecture for 2017, Dr. Philip Maddock.
1: Having heard that list of uh, names, who wouldn't be intimidated? Thank you, sir, for this kind invitation, and thank you all for coming this evening. Uh, at the start of, I think was it this morning or yesterday morning, David Pearson cautioned us about uh, doing searches on the internet. He was looking for the ideal copy, the book that bibliographers all want the ideal copy. And that's what he got. (laughs) It was an English rock group. (laughs) A few months ago I was asked by a friend, could I identify this as a possible Irish binding? There was a little bit more to the picture but no title, no author, nothing else. So I started going through my stuff and that's definitely an Irish one, so is that one. That might be. That's definitely Irish. I thought at the time that I'd shown that book that it wasn't Irish, now I'm not sure. So I went for some extra help to the internet. And if you do a search for <laughs> dolphins, that's what you'll get. <laughs> If you persist with your search for dolphins, that's what you get. <laughs> Not to be outdone, this other peacock is really the start of our talk tonight. This is Butler, the Duke of Ormond. Uh, the Ormonds, Kilkenny family, and they fought on the side of Charles I during the Cromwellian Wars. Uh, When Charles I lost, Ormond went to France penniless with the future Charles II, and they really just scratched out a living. However, uh, with the restoration, Ormond came into his reward, and here he is all decked out as the viceroy, the king's representative in Ireland. And one of the things that he learned while he was in France was the importance of books. Finely printed books, uh, finely bound books. In 17th and 18th century Europe, books were a sign of status. And especially if you received a gift of a book from a nobleman, or even better still, from the king. And this is a copy of the Poemata by Barberini, and it was given by Louis XIV to roche Pouchin. Proudly displayed, no doubt. There's a similar, in fact, the exact same on a slightly different book in the Morgan. The only difference being that the coat of arms is Queen Christina of Sweden. Uh, she was about 24 at the time that the presentation was made and they were going to give her something girly and Mazarin said, are you nuts? This is a tough lady. Give her a proper book. <laughs> and it's now in the morgue. And this is an armorial binding gone to wherever. This is for the uh, Dauphin. Uh, Louis the XIV's son who in fact died before his father, and this book came down to the Habsburgs. The Duke of Ormond decided he would have a fine library as well, that he would be able to hold up his head in this company. And he also decided that he would start Dublin, building up Dublin as a proper capital for a proper country. And he started with the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, Uh, imitating the Invalide in Paris and before the Chelsea Hospital in London that particular book uh, bound like so and the Royal Hospital still exists in fact it's now the Museum of Modern Art and actually functions very well in that regard that's what it's like from up above and then tragedy struck Charles II died without any legitimate heir, and James II, his brother, was king. James was Catholic, which didn't fit well with the nobility, and as you know, there was the Glorious Revolution, which culminated with the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. James fled to France, Uh, poor old Ormond was out of favour for a while but got back in favour with William III, who's here on his white horse. And if you think that the Battle of the Boyne is history, that photograph was taken last week in Belfast. And that photograph was in the newspapers this morning. Mrs May depends on ten individuals to keep her government going from that party. Um, one of the problems with all of these wars that occurred in the 17th century in Ireland was that each time somebody won, they confiscated land and titles from the losing side. That happened on three different occasions. So by the time of the Glorious Revolution and William III, nobody knew who owned what. And there was a lot of toing and fro for the next 25, 30 years, including setting up a commission on the validity of forfeitures, and it was a bit of a fudge, but in the end they decided who owned what, and some people were out and some people were in. Mainly it was going to be a Protestant government for a Protestant country, for Protestant people. Catholics were out, they were not allowed to be in Parliament, they were not allowed to own anything more than £5, pounds. and most of the wealthy Catholics at that time went to the continent where they fought for the Austrians and the French, and you have beautiful French wines like uh, um, Chateau McCarthy, uh, lovely Doc, and um, the Presbyterians, the Presbyterians were also non-Anglican. The fact that they were Protestant, they were Presbyterians, they were dissenters, a lot of them came here, and you got some decent presidents out of them over the years. Um, But by 1820 the country had settled down enough to where you could now actually have a listing of who were the valid peers and lords and ladies of the country however there was a residual uncertainty people had been very close to poverty then they'd been very wealthy then they'd been poor again and to add insult to injury the Irish Parliament was subject to the English Parliament You could not pass legislation in Dublin unless it had been pre-approved in Westminster, even legislation that only pertained to Ireland. So they had to figure out another way to establish their justifiable pride in themselves. And they started off with buildings. In 1728, they commissioned the building of the Irish House of Parliament, Commons and Lords. It was the first bicameral parliament in the world, It's a magnificent building and it's still there in College Green. They also commissioned, or Trinity, sought money from Parliament for this magnificent building here. This is Trinity College, in the centre of the city, and that magnificent building is of course the long room, or the old library in Trinity College. The House of Parliament, House of Commons, was really a big social occasion. This was taken in 1780. And uh, Grattan, it's called the Patriot Parliament because finally they were standing up a little bit to the English Parliament, saying, "Hold on a minute, guys! If you're pass- if we're passing legislation only dealing with Ireland, you can't interfere." And because there had been a little bit of trouble with the colonies in America, they got some freedom. <laughs> However, things were going along swimmingly. And uh, this, by the way, we don't have any exam. Manuscript journals from the Irish Houses of Parliament. It will become obvious why in a few minutes. This is what they had in London, and it's a nice enough thing. It's a nice quarto. Irish Parliament decided that their records were going to be done on large folios measuring 17 by uh, sorry 14 by 21 inches, and they were going to be magnificently bound. And in fact, they were going to go back to the very start. To 1634, and rewrite every one of the parliamentary journals and bring them up to standard. I really think that what they were doing is they were actually editing them, but under the guise of making a really nice job of it. Uh, they and yet again to establish how important finely bound books were. This is a set of Ogilby and Fleet Bibles, 1666. Uh, presented in 1692 by William III and Mary II to the uh, Royal Chapel in Dublin Castle. It only came to... uh, only was rediscovered, really, in the last six months. It's an amazing thing to turn up out of the blue. Uh, Unfortunately, it's going back to England. We got this on loan. It's going back to England, to Wormsley, where it'll stay. Uh, And here you see the cipher... For William and Mary, here you see William and Mary the crest, and the giveaway is the harp, the Irish harp in all four corners on each cover. Absolute tragedy that we didn't spot it before Mag's brothers spotted it, but uh, Robert Harding did the research and he did a really fantastic job getting all of the records. This is a documented binding by Robert uh, Robert Steele and all of the records are in the Kew archives. In addition to doing the fine manuscript journals, the Irish Parliament also, in 1750, started publishing their journals in sets, uh, 500 sets of eight volumes. A great majority of them in plain calf with some gilding on the spine, but some of them, like this set, in fine bindings, and some of the statutes in even more elaborate bindings. Uh, I was talking to somebody today a set of these went up three years ago in Sotheby's and they were mutilated because this crest was gone they'd been cut off to supply beer mats (laughs) (laughs) so we still have Philistines among us and then after a peaceful 18th century in 1798 rebellion broke out again there were atrocities on both sides and the decision was to abolish the Irish Parliament completely, that the Irish were uh, unable to govern themselves, and that in future, uh, members of Parliament would go to London, and the Act of Union went through. As this uh, Gilray caricature shows you, it was the Union on the first vote failed, and on the second vote, after lots of... uh, money, and corruption passed. And this is ready to view of the Act of Union. A few the parliamentary journals, these magnificent journals that we know about but have never seen, they were literally put in wheelbarrows and trundled around the corner to Anglesey Street, where they stayed for four or five years, and then they went to Dublin Castle, uh, to the Record Tower. In Dublin Castle, they were... uh, surveyed in, two, in 1819 by the uh, Office of Public Works Commission. And the interesting thing is that these are the old original journals. And if you notice, nearly all of the Lord's journals were still around in 1819. Most of the commons ones had disappeared, which is where I get my suspicion that they were getting rid of records that might have cast aspersions on somebody's hereditary. Uh, sorry but there was 149 volumes left in 1819 they were kept in this building this is a photograph taken a few weeks ago that's the record tower Uh, the exhibition by the way is currently running in these rooms here Uh, sorry let me go back and that is the royal chapel where those bibles were Uh, originally intended for. We tried everything to persuade people and say, oh, look, they should go back to where they were meant. No, they're going to Wormsley. In 1865, the Irish government, in its wisdom, decided that we needed a new public records office. And this was the first steel-framed building in Dublin City. Magnificent affair and it appears to have worked very, very well. And in 1900, a fellow called Sir Edward Sullivan, an amateur binder and book collector in general, and bibliophile, discovered the bindings and took rubbings of all 149. He did very, very fine work, as well as just doing the individual tools so that you could spot them. He took photographs of 20. 15 of the photographs are extant, The other five have gone missing, and unfortunately, they've only gone missing since 1954, and nobody knows where they went to. They were around in 1954. Can you imagine doing all of these rubbings? 14 by 21 inches, how do you keep the paper still? His intent was to publish a facsimile of 50 of the best bindings, And that's just one of Sullivan's bindings. He's a very accomplished binder. There's three volumes of the rubbings of his own work in the Huntington in California. Sullivan was elected president of the set of odd volumes in 1907. In 1911, he gave a talk on decorated bookbinding in Ireland. And in 1914, this book was published, the first monograph, monogram on Irish bindings. And then, yet again, tragedy strikes. The Irish Civil War in 1922. Uh, the majority of the country voted in favour of the treaty with Great Britain. The treaty, in a rather crooked manner, uh, decided to partition the country. One of the uh, conditions of the treaty was that the six northern counties would remain part of the United Kingdom. A significant minority of the then IRA decided no. And they occupied the four courts, and after four or five days, the government decided no, they couldn't put up with this, and they started shelling the four courts. With the result, Sorry, let me correct that. The common perception has been that one of the shells from that gun that you saw set the building on fire. Turns out, a letter came up three years ago, that in fact the rebels, as they were called, had mined the whole concourse. And when they were evacuating, they blew the whole thing up. In blowing the whole thing up, that beautiful record building, that's what was left. So the great majority of public records in Ireland went up in smoke, and all of the bindings were destroyed. In 1954, a chap called Maurice Craig brought out a book on Irish book bindings, and reproduced Sullivan's rubbings and photographs for the first time. That was the first time I ever saw them when I read Craig's book for the first time. I decided, hmm, maybe we can do something. And I started collecting uh, Irish books or Irish bindings, really. Some of them were published in London, some of them published in France, even. great majority published in Dublin, but they have this characteristic rich array of tooling. And using my trusty Macintosh, with uh, originally a mouse and then just a, um, what do you call that, magic touchpad, and then more recently a Cintiq pad, (coughs) and Photoshop. I've been extracting each tool by just carefully drawing around it. Uh, To do that you have to scan them at 1200 dpi. Anything less than that you don't get a clear picture because these things have to be blown up to a size of about six inches before you can get the actual detail that you need. So I started abstracting each tool for each binding And at the same time, I started extracting the tools from Sullivan's rubbings and putting them all together. I have hundreds of these things. My initial idea was that I would just do digital reconstructions, that I would put the abstracted or extracted tools over the photographs in uh, Maurice Crave's book. It's okay, but it's not great. And then Morris, for the 2000, for the millennium in Dublin, suggested that something more should be done. And did a little bit of arm-twisting, as you can see here. I'd known him for an awful long time. He was an absolutely amazing man. He's an architectural historian, or was. He died a few years ago at 90. Um, I knew him in the Model Engineer Society, where we were both building model ships. And the tradition in the engineering society, model engineering society was you didn't talk about what you did outside. You were just Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith. So I knew this lovely man called Morris who built model boats and he knew this geek, this medical geek who built model ships. It wasn't until years later that we found that our combined it just in books. And around the same time some of you would know this chap. That's um, Edward Bainton Card, and I'm holding that book that you saw before. Oh, we're not there. Okay, I'm holding the statutes book. He's holding a book, and that binding is based on the Long Roman Trinity. That's Hofer's book, and that was Geert van Dahl did that particular binding. Edward introduced me to this chap, who's uh, Trevor Lloyd, a bookbinder in Ludlow on the Welsh borders. I showed showed, um, Trevor the enlarged versions of the tools. He figured out he could copy the drawings, give them to this chap, uh, who's a real Heath Robinson figure. He's an autodidact who has invented all sorts of amazing machines. And he was able to figure out a way in which he could reproduce the tools that we were showing him on these books. So we started... Matching tools on the photographs to tools in the books, and we now have 400. And these are the ones that are in Dublin. These ones here. Actually, I have 800. We have two sets of the uh, tools, the hand tools. Why? I'm always terrified that story about Cobden Sanderson and isn't it Walker. Uh, where Cobden Sanderson went and threw all the matrices into the Thames. So I said, if I ever did a project that required tools or something like that, it would always be made in a, a pair of sets. So that, God forbid, we would fall out. I think probably because we have two sets we never had. And Trevor and I worked happily for the last 10 years on this project. <laughs> There's what the tools look like in close up, they're brass. One of the issues was, how do you match the tools up? That one turns out to be that one. That one there turns out to be that one there. That's not, that was a book on my shelves. Not a particularly uh, good one. The lines are a bit blurred. Interestingly, it's a Dutch book, Amsterdam. And then here's a small uh, Terence also Dutch, much earlier, and here the images are a lot clearer and we were able to confirm that all of those tools were what we were looking at in that other photograph. This is your insect role, David. Um, that's the original photograph and there's the role after Trevor has applied it and there's the actual role. When we talk about a role in bookbinding, it's actually a brass wheel with the picture, if you want, with the images uh, engraved on the circumference. The leather is covered with egg white. Gold leaf is placed. This is heated to the correct temperature. And then you press really, really hard. What people don't expect about book binding. Books look so delicate. Gold tooling is actually brute force. You really have to use a lot of force to get that image in there. These are the two chaps that made 14 of the rolls. The last one was made by another chap. One of the most difficult ones we had to figure out what to do was uh, 2013. And the problem was 2013. How did, I make it, how did I choose which 14 books I was going to reproduce? Well, in doing the rubbings and the photographs, Sullivan was working towards the reproduction he was going to do. And he marked some of them with this symbol, or even sometimes with a little manicule. They were the ones he thought the best. This is the largest note that he wrote on any of the volumes. So obviously, we had to do this one. The problem was the rubbing, not a particularly good one. It's a very, very busy binding. The only photograph that existed was this little four-inch thing in Country Life. I photographed it, I scanned it actually, and then I blew it up in Photoshop and fiddled with it and all the rest of it, and started to get some idea about what was going on. Most of these tools were very straightforward. I could find them in other books. The big problem was the roll. If you look at a blow-up, it's actually a hunting scene. And we have a little dog here, a rabbit here, a hare here, and back here we have a chap. Interesting thing about it, the hare, the dog, the man, they're all the same size. There's no idea of scale. I looked and looked and looked for a hunting role, uh, a hunting scene role. Couldn't find one in the British uh, Library database. Found references to uh, about four or five different hunting roles in von Leeuwen's book. Um, fortunately, he was in uh, Massachusetts at the time. He came down to visit with me, and lo and behold, we got on to a Dutch book dealer and he had four books which I promptly bought which had hunt scenes. And you can see here the dog. Another one running the opposite way. And this one was the closest to what we actually had in the Dublin one. The next thought I had on this one was why would the Irish Parliament be using a Dutch role. I remembered that 1640, and at the time of the Glorious Revolution, a lot of people got the heck out of Dodge, they got out of Dublin, and went to Holland. And one of them was Dr. Worth. And the Dr. Worth Library, I phoned Elizabeth Ann Warren, said, do you have any book with a hunting scene on it? And she said, i I look. I said, well, look for a dog, hunter, whatever. She came up with these two books. This one and this one. They're small little octavos, and I had to scan every side of each of those books to get enough samples to be able to overlap to get the full circumference here to here. But using those, using the four Dutch rows that we had, we were able to reconstruct that hunting scene. This particular roll was a very, fi- very fine one, and we were back to the uh, Heath Robinson guy. You can see where he's engraved it on the inside of this plaster of Paris. It's in the centrifuge and pouring the molten brass in. There it is when it came out, and there it is all cleaned up. Uh, Bookbinders, when they're uh, tooling, you have this special uh, table if you like metal top the book is tucked in underneath and you can press all you want on the actual board that way and it's not transmitted through into the book sometimes you pick up a prize binding that's been done by some amateur and they put the whole book under the press pull down the press and the impression goes all the way halfway through the book you're supposed to do it this way this is Trevor. Some of you have not seen binding being done. And I think I have to fidget that. No, I can do it this way, I think. Uh, Trevor's English. Um, he has first painted the back with egg white. Now he's putting a very thin layer of Vaseline, and the purpose of the Vaseline is to... Actually, I'm going to turn that off because it's sometimes confusing. Basically, he's picking up the gold leaf. Don't do this at home. Gold leaf flies all over the place. So the gold leaf is in position. And the gold leaf has been patted down. That tool has been heated on a heating oven that's just off to the side. He's got his pattern already laid out here on the card. And the important movement when he's applying this is watch what he does. He puts the heel of the tool in, then he rocks the tool forward. You don't put the tool in, bang, because you only get the central piece to show. You have to rotate the tool over. You can judge the quality of the binding, of the tooling, rather, if you know that particular part of the and now he is getting rid of the excess gold leaf with what's called a gold rubber, which causes great hysteria in American circles, it's an eraser. But the English colours are old rubber. And there, you can do it quite vigorously. It's actually crepe rubber dissolved in uh, paraffin. Prince Charles even got into the act. This is one of the parliamentary bindings, and I'm very pleased to say that Trevor. Subsequently, I got an MBE last year out of this. They're very large books, these parliamentary bindings. So I just wanted to show you the 14 bindings. That's the very first one. And that was the one that had that uh, tooling where the tools are superimposed on each other. I call that the lace maker. That's 1713. There's the hunting scene. We know from Solomon's notes that there was a black onlay put down first and then the hunting roll. 1737, you notice there's no virtually no difference between 1737 and 1697. That's because there's one important thing. The decision to redo the journals was made in 1730. Therefore, This binding was not done any earlier than 1730. In fact, this particular one was paid for in 1740, so it was done somewhere around then. I bring this to your attention because if you read anything about the parliamentary bindings, there's great argument and discussion about parliamentary binder A and parliamentary binder B and parliamentary binder C. and Really, this attempt to name binders when you can't because you've no receipts, nothing else. It's a futile exercise. And I think it brought bookbinding studies into disrepute because we really went down a rabbit hole of trying to ascribe binders and bindings to each other. It's not that easy. And in fact, there was a very... Nah, I, I've been to Marion Foote's lectures, and in fact I did her class here. She wrote a book on some bindings in Marsh's Library, and... Caused a heck of a row with the other guy, Joe MacDonald. Oh. So, 1737, 1745, and this amazing technique that evolved in Ireland of doing onlays with paper. This is actually marbled paper. I probably got the colour wrong. I'm not sure. When I first did this, I was working 10-12 hour days when we were doing this. I got the colour wrong, I think. However, it's close enough. That's what the actual featherwork in the centre of the book looks like. It's done with repeated application of bouges. And it's absolutely magnificent. When you see it in sunlight and you tilt the book over and back, amazing. That is actually a more accurate colour. The other interesting thing about these books, the real early ones were done, even though they look really elaborate and intricate, they were done with about 16 individual tools, applied about 16,000 times. There's 16,000 individual impressions in these books. This particular one, which looks the simplest of all the bindings we did, there's 65 different individual tools in this book alone. One of my favorites.
0: Philip, so which one of these are you getting to rare books?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 impulsive generosity is a stupid disease. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to ask Niamh to decide. I, um, well, I, I, there, there are two or three that I wouldn't have no problem. It's going to be very difficult for the last three. It's going to be really difficult. And that one is quite a topical one. That was Mr. Crosby's balloon, which went up that year. So these ones... They got less adventurous, they're more classical, and in fact that's as classical as you can get, that's pure Adams, and they got less inventive, so really they'd run out of steam by the time, and in fact Lords didn't do any more after 95, there were a few more commons, but uh, 1799 it all stopped, no more parliamentary bindings. One of the big advantages to this whole project has been the people I've met. I've met some astonishing people. That's Morris Craig when he was 89, and fortunately we had done three of them uh, before he died. He died when he was 91 a few years ago. And the most amazing thing was he said to me, Philip, I never thought I'd live to see this day, which was really heartbreaking and lovely. This is Bernard Middleton, uh, Bernard came to the National Library and spent a couple of days looking through MS-3017. That's the great big book that Sullivan did. He pasted in all of these rubbings that he did. And Sullivan and uh, Middleton, I wish I had written down or recorded, he said something along the lines of, this guy got out, he's having a ball. <laughs> <laughs> And It sort of implied that he'd gotten out of jail or out of the loony bin or something. (laughs) One of the things that preserved the bindings was uh, Sullivan remarks that were in Spanish leather cases. I never knew anything about Spanish leather cases, and then a bunch of them came up for auction. They're these lovely soft leather cases that precious books were kept in. Have you ever seen them? I don't know these. Um things that you learn. I I really would like if, when we're talking and studying bookbindings, that we don't get hung up in structural details or bookbinding details, just let's look at bindings. This is a very interesting book, you've seen it earlier on. It's interesting because, if you look carefully, uh, that tooling and that one and that one and that one, they're consistently brighter then that one, that one, and that one. And if you look at this one here, you'll see... uh, Yeah, this is, by the way, the dolphin again. If you look here, single point there, do you see that? But this one down here... uh, Let me find it again. Yeah, there. That's got a double point. And What has happened, if you remember when Trevor was doing the tooling, he put in the heel of the tool first, rolled it forward, and took it off. Some people are uncertain that they've used enough pressure, so they go forward and then they'll come back. But on the come back, they've rotated it just a tiny bit, and this is what you end up with. And there's a slight doubling here. So what I did on the computer was I took away The other tools, and there's one slight error in one of one of these applications. There's multiple errors on this tool. It's not on straight. It's lifted there. It's lifted there. It's lifted there, and there're doublers all over the place. I think what happened here is that the master finisher, master tooler, went along with this tool, put it in with the assurance that a master tooler would have, and then turned over to the apprentice and said, now you do the other one in between. So I think when we talk about that binder A did a binding, the shop did the binding. And I think it's further supported by, if you look, there's another curiosity about this binding. That tool... And that tool are the same. It's just been rotated around. They look really good. That the opposite tool, it looks bad. I think again the master finisher put in the first one. Told the guy, okay, you put in the other one now, and wasn't nearly as good. That's uh, featherwork bindings. They are very very difficult to find. There's one in Farmley in the Guinness Library. There's one in Germany. Uh, there's two in Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> and in studying, because the first... Um, I should have mentioned, by the way, that Trevor and I spent a year working together on doing eight reproductions of some of my bindings. So that we'd be happy that we could both work together and how are we going to do this? And on the featherwork the first one that I got was actually there was too much space so I went back to the photographs of the Farmy featherwork by me which is the finest in the world and did some actual measurements of density and all the rest of it and we were able to improve the whole thing. David and I were talking earlier about who made these tools in the 18th century, who actually made bookbinding tools? We have very little in the line of records. This is one that I was able to pull up. It's late 18th century, um, 1770 about. But William Mossop, who was a medalist, and here he says that he will make cutler stamps, silversmiths, touches, and tastes, and bookbinders tools. So we have uh, a clear example that at least an engraver was working. The thing about uh, the type of work he did, it was in a very low bas-relief. He wasn't doing flat tooling. So one of the questions I have is whether in fact 18th century gold tooling looks as bright as it does because the tools were actually not flat tools doing an outline but actually in bas-relief of some sort that's the sort of work that Mossop did. It's not a big stretch to say that some of those lovely roses and crests and plumage were done in a similar type of bas-relief, except in taglio instead of like that. A close-up. These were called proofs, by the way. These were seal proofs, and they came in lovely little turned uh, wooden boxes, and you went to your uh, dye maker and you said, okay, I want to get my press done, he'd make up this proof, send it to you and you'd write back and say, okay, yes, go ahead with the actual thing and I'll pay for it. One of the other things I learned about is how the difference between labour costs and material costs. The first two bindings that we did, we were able to find large uh, goatskins there were two large goats that had given up their lives so that we could do the parliamentary bindings. When we came to parliamentary binding number three, nobody had big goat skins. Now, we know in the 18th century that domestic animals were not as big as the ones we have now, so how did they get around it? In addition to collecting fine book bindings, I also collect bindings that are coming apart, that have been badly stored, that have been half-eaten by bugs and things. And one of the printed commons journals gave the answer. The front spine and the start of the back were covered. The leather was paired very thin, and then on the other piece of leather, it was also paired thin, and you had an overlap in shipping that's called a scarf joint. And once you see one scarf joint, you start seeing it all over the place. That's a small book. That's a tiny little octavo. It's about four by seven inches. It's actually a memorandum book. And then I started seeing little patches that are again, scarf-jointed in. And what that tells us is that the materials were a lot more expensive than the labour was. So in order to get the best out of every little piece of leather you had, you had your apprentice-practice-pairing leather. That particular memorandum book, uh, 1762... It has lists of all of the merchants and tradesmen in Dublin for 1762, gives their address, and tells you what they do. This fellow here is a tanner, so he's the leather guy. Don't pass up scruffy little books when you see them. This one was a $5 book, and it showed the stitching, and it showed the insertion of the cords into the board. And it's not a terribly important book. It's about uh, tables of interest. Ah, but the back page. A whole price list of the memorandum books and how you can choose what quality you want. You can get one in marbled paper and glued, G-L-E-W, apostrophe D, for 6 and a, six and a half pence, or one in vellum with interleaved white paper for 16 pence, Etc., etc. These things are very, very difficult to come across. Do look at books when you see them. (laughs) We'll bother with that. And that's it. Thank you very much. Say that again. What is the text inside those? Books? Oh, text. That was an interesting problem. Uh, there, we don't have. We have some idea of what was in. When I make the when I make the comment that uh, they cleaned up the thing, that's because there was a fellow called Rowley, uh, 1850, who was commissioned to go through and do abstracts. Unfortunately, he took the wrong abstracts, offended the authorities, and got fired. So it's an incomplete record, um, but we have the printed journals. They're boring. They're all about um, and just to reproduce them just for the sake of completeness. It wasn't what was in those manuscript journals before. So the first two I did blank paper, and that's a heart. They're the two they're getting. <laughs> <laughs> that was a heartbreaker because. You know a blank book, even when it's closed. it's not it's sitting there silent, it's got no soul. Um, and then I thought about what would we do? in the end, I said, there are only two books of Irish relevance that have uh, that are big enough for these books. and one of them is Chambers' uh, Dictionary of Civil Architecture. Now it's a London book, and Chambers never actually came to Ireland, but He was very influential in Dublin. And the most famous jewel of architecture is the Marino, uh, Lord Charlemont's Marino in uh, Casino, out in Marino, sorry. uh, Magnificent little building. And uh, Chambers designed that. And the drawings are in that book. So I hoovered up those. I think six of the volumes are Chambers' Encyclopedia. By a weird coincidence, Sullivan's father, who was the Lord High Chancellor of Dublin, of Ireland, um, he had commissioned and put together a book on the national manuscripts of Ireland. Big, huge thing, five-volume thing, and we used that for the remainder. I bought three and a half sets of that, and um, so that's hard to find too. I they're all gone. Uh, So, yes, the books are relevant to Irish things, but they're not the original text. There wasn't any point. It would be, A, prohibitively expensive to do it, and it's already there in microfiche and, you know, so... Um, each volume took approximately three to four months once we actually started. The planning, um, what I haven't shown you is any of the diagrams, drawings, emails, photographs. I mean, I have about a terabyte of files on this project. Uh, Trevor and I were Dropbox and uh, all the rest of it was, we, we did a lot of wetransfer transfer and Dropbox. Um, takes about three to four months once you actually start the tooling and the sewing and all the rest of it that's not four months continuous work, basically this type of intense uh, work, you can only do it for about two hours at a time and Trevor's actually visibly aged from the time he started this and he did say, he's, he's, he's very proud of this and rightly so but he did say to me at the reception in Dublin Castle he said, I think we're done. I don't think we're doing any more <laughs> of these. <laughs> so they, they take a lot of effort. I mean, they, the least intense one had about 15,000 impressions, and the most dense one had 20,000 impressions. That's 20,000 times where you can make a mistake.
0: Uh, the one that I
1: made a mistake on—the very first one—that uh, was the um, cottage roof one with the light blue. I stupidly based that on. I had a seventh. I, I forgot about my own research and believed the date on the damn thing. And I had—I have a three-volume set of uh, the history of the Tsar. Printed in Dublin, 1730, and it, has, it had the edges marbled. And it had sat on a shelf forever, and the bottom edge and the three volumes was pristine, absolutely spotless. And I was so delighted at discovering that that I said, oh, we now have a piece of thing that age matches it. But of course, the binding was actually done 10 or 20 years after that it wasn't done in 1730 so the colour that I picked was too light on the others we have a lot of experience at, um, in Farmley there actually is a lovely binding with a marbled paper on lay and, we, and was date correct so the second one that we did, the one with the triangle and the darker French slash um, marbled paper, that one I'm pretty happy to stand with They were laid paper because if you look closely at them, you can see laid lines on the paper. What astonishes me is how well the paper lasts. I've got a couple of Baskervilles that have paper onlays that have been in and out of shelves, and in some cases the paper has done better than the leather.
0: Speaking for the group, we find it shocking that you have got the colour wrong. But nonetheless... Please join me in thanking <laughs> Dr. Maya for wonderful <Thank you. laughs>